Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Atlanta-based artist David Crowder, who goes by Crowder, is a phenomenally popular contemporary Christian musician. His current single, Good God Almighty, has been in the number one spot on Christian charts for several weeks now. Crowder recently released a new studio album, Milk and Honey, and later this hour, he sits down with City Lights producer Summer Evans for a preview. First, soul food and southern cooking collide with global cuisines in the new Twisted Soul cookbook. Chef Deborah Van Trees named the book after her restaurant in Atlanta. She joins us now via Zoom. Chef Deborah, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to be here. Well, a delight for me as well. The context you provide for the recipes before the actual recipes begin is very important to this cookbook. Why is it incorrect to presume that soul food exists in a fixed place and time? It's incorrect because we don't stay stagnant. You know, we continue as people to evolve and that's that's all people. And so it just makes sense that our food evolves also. We're not, you know, living in ancient times. You know, there's things that even take place that, you know, weren't as prevalent before. You know, we do have mixed culture marriages and and same-sex marriages. And, you know, with that, our families are becoming so diverse within themselves. So is our food. And that's the point that I'm trying to make in this cookbook. Why is regional cuisine important to soul food? Well, I think people have the idea or have had the idea that soul food is is just like a bubble. It's one thing. And it's not. It is definitely influenced by the region. African-Americans, you know, came here and they were place in the South for the most part. But as the world, the country evolved, they started migrating up into Northern states, different areas, moving around. And so did the cuisines of of those places or the produce, the things that were available to them. And so they adapted and they utilized ingredients that were local wherever they ended up being. And so... Soul food is not just one type of food. There's different variations. There's different combinations. And a lot of that depends upon where actually you live. And it's important to know that. It's important to know that we all, because we look similar, we're not. We are a very diverse group of people if you're looking at it from an African-American standpoint. And so is our food. So is our cuisine. Reading what you wrote about that in 
the Twisted Soul cookbook brought back about four years ago. My family and I visited the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History. Mm-hmm. And the dining area was its own cultural experience and had just what you talked about. There were different food stations for each region of the country. Have you been there? No, I haven't. And I now am extremely excited about my upcoming visit. I plan on going this summer. But no one has ever told me that. And I find that really, really incredible. I can't wait to go. (laughs) It's fantastic. And so four of us were visiting the museum. I was the only one who stayed in the southern region. I mean, that fried chicken looked just so amazing. But (laughs) reading the important points you make about regional influence, that our cuisines are response to where we reside and, and what's available and those cultural traditions. It just brought back that vivid memory of visiting the museum and a wonderful lunch. Would you explain how building upon basic recipes at once expands the repertoire, but also upholds the tradition of soul food? Yes. Soul food that I I grew up with, you know, it was wholesome. It was delicious. It was something that I craved for sometimes when I, I went away and I came back home. As food and food systems have, have changed, you know, so has some of my ideas and my concepts. The basic food that I was given is absolutely delicious, but I think that we you know, have an obligation to experiment with it, know where it comes from, know that, you know, your grandfather made this amazing gumbo and he added this, this, and that, but also open up your eyes to all of the things that are available to you now that he may not have had access to. We have more accessibility than what our ancestors did. And it's, great to be able to build upon the basis that they gave to us and still utilize some of the the things that we have access to that they didn't and things that you know are being produced that now are are new things or we've got beautiful heirloom tomatoes you know we are doing cross pollination of of certain things flowers and veggies and they're fun and why not use them and encourage future generations as food does continue to evolve to also build on those recipes. You never want to lose sight of where they came from, how they were produced out of strife sometime, out of necessity. You know, now a lot of times we're, do- we're doing it just because it tastes good yes. and we're having fun with it. And so, you know, Like, let's open up our eyes and just be as creative as we possibly can, but still understand where that tradition came from. I'm glad you brought up the heirloom tomato because I am not saying this to flatter, but the fried green tomatoes you serve at the Twisted Soul restaurant, that's the gold standard. Oh, why, thank you. Do you grow those yourself? No, nope. And sometimes we have a hard time sourcing them. Mm. But there are a couple of local farmers that are pretty consistent with the availability. So we try to get them as much as possible from the local farmers. Um, Now in the summer, yes, you will find, you know, I have a garden that's full of tomatoes. And, and actually have now been trying to think, could we play with a green cherry tomato oh and do some type of, of, you know, similar recipe with them, you know, where they're little poppers or something of that nature. <laughs> but yeah, it's very important for us to start with the good product. And so, yeah, we're very picky about the green tomatoes that we pick. Mm. Let's talk about the layout 
of this cookbook. What are your different takes on these soul food recipes? You have basically three parts to the book. There's a lot going on because it's definitely globally inspired. The recipes, a lot of them I talk about, I think the cast-offs, the throwaways and the cast-offs. And those are the things that I vividly remember as a child that we found in pots quite often, turkey necks, neck bones, things that were wholesome, but were inexpensive because no one wanted to eat them. And the idea that there were a group of people who came and made this deliciousness out of what was considered trash is very inspiring for me. And it's also what is trending now when we take a look at the sustainability movement and being able to, if you're going to sacrifice an animal, understand you want to use as much of that as possible and not be so wasteful. It wasn't something that I discovered that was just a part of African-American cuisine. I found places all over the world as I traveled that reflected some of those same throwaways and cast-offs, and there were recipes for that in their culture also. So I've got a little bit of that going on. And then just the realization that in, in some places, what we may consider in the United States to be just comfort, just easy, simple food somewhere else is a very upscale type of ingredient or upscale dish. And I wanted to show that relationship also, and then have fun with some desserts and have fun with what I call some necessities in the cookbook. I think dessert is a necessity. <laughs> Excuse me for interrupting, Chef Deborah. I think so too, which is so funny because as I get older, I think it's more of a necessity. I don't know yes. what, what about getting older and just a little something sweet, just a little something has become a very important part of my, my daily experiences, believe me. If you've just tuned in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Chef Deborah Van Trees about her new book, The Twisted Soul Cookbook, Modern Soul Food with Global Flavor. What you mentioned about realizing that many of the economical ingredients were included in early soul recipes yes. by necessity, although they were flavorful and delicious. And then in your travels, both as a flight attendant and later in traveling around the world on your own, you realize, oh my, this whole nose-to-tail movement that we hear about has really existed in France, in Italy, in China. Yes. There's this commonality yes. of why it's wise to use as much of the animal as possible. Exactly. And, and how, with a fancy French name, suddenly it becomes very elegant sounding. Would you talk about your recipe for a particular pâté early in the cookbook? Yes. There's a few things along the line of pâté that I talk about. There's an oxtail rillette that we, we did in the cookbook. We did a hoghead cheese, which is something that now I'm kind of focused on a little bit because I find it funny that there's discussion on aspic, the idea of aspic dishes coming back. And I laughed to myself and thought they never left. Hoghead cheese is considered really some trash, some pretty country cooking here <laughs> in the United States. But you go to Germany, you go to France, and it definitely is a delicacy. Pate, it's, you know, just a traditional pate. When you really sit and put it together, it's really a fancy meatloaf, you know, if you think about it, you know, and 
the ingredients that are put in a pate are really kind of some cast off and throwaway ingredients combined with fresh herbs and great flavor and with a cute name, pate. I think at, at some point food was used as status. And I feel as we evolve that the world is understanding that, you know what, it's really not that serious. Good food is just good food all the way around. And yes, there are some things that continue to be extremely expensive, our caviars, our, our truffles. But like even in Russia, you know, I've spent some time in Russia at one point and they would trade some caviar for a pair of Levi jeans in a heartbeat. <laughs> it's so common there, you know, so I think people take a step back and, and really just understand good food is good food, no matter where you're at, no matter what name you give to it, it's good food. Why is soul food compatible with the sustainability movement? I think because it really comes from sustaining. Slaves were trying to to take care of themselves, take care of their family. Most African-American diets back when, when slaves were brought here, they didn't get very much in terms of meats. And like I said, it was cast-offs. It was very much a high vegetable diet that they had. Meats were kind of used then for flavors and seasonings. Then every now and then special occasions. But the, the thought behind it, the creativity behind just every little thing, you know, so that you, you didn't starve, so that your family didn't starve. And coming to the table and eating was a bit of a fellowship, some downtime. Those slaves learned how to take those things, all those things, chicken gizzards, livers, turkey necks, pork neck bones, you know, pork intestines, and make delicious food from it. And that is really what sustainability now is about. It always has been. And I think it's it's not just about the African-American culture. It is about all people all over the world who didn't have a lot. And they learned in their own ways, to use their own spices all over, to take that, you know, from nose to tail and figure out something to do with it. I love your description of coming to the table together as an act of fellowship. Yes. It's, It's a beautiful way to think about how we share food. It's very important. And for me, I can't say, oh, I grew up poor. I grew up okay. But it was very important, even within my family, to come together, bring what you have, and come together and share and fellowship. Mm. You mentioned Russia. We've talked about French and Italian influence. And in your book, you also acknowledge Israeli dishes, Argentinian food. I'm going to circle back a little. In what way was your experience as a chef during the 1996 Olympic Games a turning point in your career? When I was traveling to all these places and actually got an opportunity to live in a few of the spaces, I was learning, I was absorbing, not realizing that at that time I would become a chef because I was a flight attendant. I was a flight attendant who just loved food and loved learning about it. But it was never in my parameters at that moment to consider the possibility that I would utilize this down the road as a chef. You know, just wanted to learn how to cook and understand the culture and and just enjoy the people. When the Olympics came to Atlanta, that was like my kind of first experience as being an executive chef. I fell into a position pretty much out of culinary school. I did a lot of work with the consulates. 
and realized, you know, depended upon all of those experiences, knowing how to make an authentic paella. So when the Spanish consulate was here, I can make you paella and you're going to call me out to see who is this back here and how has she learned? How does she know how to do this so well? It was the things that they didn't come from a cookbook. They came from firsthand experience because I did not just go into restaurants and eat. I went into homes. These were places I had lived. Same with the French consulate, you know, same with the German consulate. There was few, I had to do a little bit of research, you know, because I, I did get an opportunity even to, to feed the Canadian prime minister at, at a particular event. And most of them, they wanted a taste of the South, but they also wanted something, you know, that made them feel good, made them feel comfortable, made them feel at home. So it was such an honor to be able to present, you know, some of these national dishes to the people who have grown up eating it and get such a positive response from them. Yeah. And ultimately, how did that lead you to a broader definition of soul food? It just all kind of clicked into place that we all have some version of that. You know, we all have a version of soul food. We all have something that touches our soul. The African-American cuisine, they put the name soul on their food. And it really came at a point during more of the civil rights movement when there was so much that was being said to uplift the Black people, to uplift them. And the food was just one of the things. And so it was named soul food. It's a deeper definition than just a particular type of cuisine. It's really, to me, a cuisine that touches your heart and touches your soul. And I think every culture deep down has that. Every person has it. I don't care if it's a hot dog. There's something that you've had as a kid. It could be a peanut butter sandwich. It could be grandma's tuna noodle casserole, but it made you feel good. And as an adult, you will always connect that food, that dish, with home, with something that makes you feel good. And that to me is what soul food should do. Chef Deborah Van Tree speaking about her new book, The Twisted Soul Cookbook, Modern Soul Food with Global Flavors. You can learn more about it on our website, wabe.org slash citylife. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. I'm Lisa Cheneau, and my art name is Lee Cheneau. It's a combination of my first and last name. I'm a multimedia figurative painter. I experiment in simple ways with making surreal imagery of women and animals that have symbolic meaning to me. Some of these are near life-size on wood panel with painted costumes made to be put on or taken off, kind of like a giant paper doll painting. 
I also work with painted canvas. I cut it apart and sew the pieces back together with thick black yarn to make it really obvious that I've made changes. Well, my mom was a young widow and she worked full time, so in order to give me a little after school activity, she sent me to her friend's oil painting class once a week. I was just a shy nine year old and I liked keeping to myself. I would quietly mix colors and my teacher would come by to help me and I would just copy her brush strokes. I started too young to be in her class, but since I was so quiet, she let me stay. And later on, years later, my elective classes in school always included art, and maybe I was a little overly saturated with it. But the urge to create has always been so exciting to me, and, and I love to lose myself in the process. Just taking a walk is a great motivator for me because my thoughts turn around and help me figure out what to do next with an in-process piece. I also find inspiration in old-fashioned children's toys, especially paper dolls. Um, seeing beautiful clothing, uh, like fashion, it makes me want to paint an outfit for one of my figures. When painting figures, I place the eyes in early on so that the gaze of the subject I'm working on takes hold, almost making me fall under a spell, making me really focused. It reminds me of reading a really good book that I can't put down. My husband, Wilfertizi, helps me maintain a positive attitude. He's my secret weapon for sure. He has carpenter skills and helps me make the wood panels I've been working on. So, I mean, there is not much more motivating to me than a gorgeous surface to work on. Music moves me to become very focused and absorbed. Of course, I'm inspired by historical artists, namely Antony Gaudi, Frida Kahlo, Henri Rousseau, Gustav Klimt, um, and Henry Darger. I visit galleries and art exhibitions because viewing art, even if it's nothing like what I make, uh, it sets off a spark and sends me back into the studio with a renewed energy to face whatever piece I'm working on. I moved to Atlanta when I was in my early 20s, straight after graduating from SCAD in Savannah. Um, I was renting all around town in Cabbage Town and Inman Park, Decatur, while working a lot of different jobs. The people I wound up living near or working with have become my close friends. Uh, most of them are musicians. My husband is a musician. Uh, others are writers um, and of course plenty of visual artists. My husband is from here so my footing feels really firm in Atlanta. The diverse fabric of this city obviously influences me without me even realizing it. I like to see new art and open studio events at places like the Goat Farm and Mint. Uh, they're right on target for seeing new art as well as art in process. Occasionally, art studio warehouses have special events like at South River Art Studios where they feature dramatic fire-burning metal sculptures out front and the artists show work inside all along with live music as it's just like a big carnival. I frequent Marsha Wood Gallery, White Space, 378 Gallery, Swan Coach House, Different Trains Gallery, the Contemporary, MoCA, oh, there's so many. Um, and there's temporary art events organized by Flux Project. Um, of course, it's always great to get to the Beltline and see ever-changing art there, as well as all the new murals that pop up all over town. I will be part of an upcoming group show in August at 378 Gallery, located in Candler Park. I'm so excited working with my interchangeable costume paper doll inspired paintings. They are what I call my dressing room series. I might have a little something up my sleeve similar to them for my August show, but mostly at 378 Gallery, uh, I'll be including my sewn canvas paintings and some of my smaller ceramic paintings, all of them new. I'll be showing with amazing local artists, Claire Butler, Cindy Zarelli, and Tom Zarelli in our exhibit at 378 Gallery. Otherwise, I sometimes open my home studio to visitors on request. That was Speaking of the Arts, today featuring Lisa Cheneau. You're listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Atlanta-based artist David Crowder 
who goes by Crowder, is a phenomenally popular contemporary Christian musician. His current single, Good God Almighty, has been in the number one spot on Christian charts for several weeks now. Last month, Crowder released a new studio album, Milk and Honey, when he recently spoke with City Lights producer Summer Evans via Zoom, Crowder talked about his experience as an artist during the pandemic. Well, we were, as I'm sure everyone was pretty caught off guard when things just came to a halt. Uh, we were in Louisville, Kentucky on a tour called Winter Jam, which is a, there's a lot of artists on the tour. So there's probably like seven different bands that are out and we had already everybody had already loaded in sound check had happened and and at about three in the afternoon somebody popped on our bus most likely the tour manager or something said uh everybody's gotta go home we're packing up (laughs) and suddenly a word that used to not mean that much it was like you're no longer essential non-essential is a terrible (laughs) word to be told (laughs) out loud it's like we don't need you go home i was like ah COVID took a lot from us. It also took some great words like Zoom. That used to be a fun word. Now that means you're going to work. It used to be like, I got some new sneakers and they're fun and I go faster, watch me Zoom. And now (laughs) that word is dead. As is unprecedented. Unprecedented, that word is super precedented at this point. But yeah, non-essential, that was hard. It was hard to take. I did with a lot of of my friends that write music and play music all the time for their job. I've started writing music. We had just finished the studio at my house here in Atlanta and luckily just in time. So I found myself with a great space to create and tried to feel and, and be as productive as possible. You know, uh, that would, I think that's what a lot of us were, were doing while biding our time if you were stuck in your house. Did you ever try to do any live stream performances? I gave a stab at it a few times on the front end of things, you know, and uh, I think we, we all did, you know, trying to think. You know, there were tons of people that were in the same spot, you know, stuck away from one another. And and music is such a great way to bring folks together coming from very different places. And so I thought, well, this will be great. We can lighten the mood a little bit. And, and uh, it's just so weird. It's just really weird, you know, playing live music to a to a camera in your in your basement. It just felt wrong. You just don't so, get the same response, you know. No, like- <laughs> yeah. So I, I gave up on it pretty quickly and just, you know got back to work around the house and recording stuff. So but it, it, but we coped and we made it. We're here. We are talking on, on uh, what seems to be some daylight at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. With a tour, not too far away. Yeah. Um, fall. We'll have an ex- pretty extensive tour happening in the fall. And a lot of, a lot of what happened is, you know, we, we had plans <laughs> and they got shifted. So we're going to try to pick up where we left off and, and sort of what we had in front of us before we all had to go home. Yeah. Before we get into Milk and Honey, I just wanted to talk about the genre of Christian contemporary music. Some listeners might think about Christian music in the traditional sense, like hymns or gospel or the call and response. How would you describe contemporary Christian music? Well, I think contemporary Christian music has had a difficult time deciding what it is as well. Um, I think it starts with just people who are of faith, wanting that, that love music, and they're trying to to write and play music that they're able to enunciate their outlook on life. You know, if like a country artist might write a song about their dog and their pickup truck and how meaningful it is. A lot of people who are of faith feel that same creative inclination. And so I think in terms of sound and musicality, it's grown a lot because of the time it's had to incubate as a genre. And and now it just, it would be tough to figure out whether what you're listening to is coming from, 116 here in Atlanta, Georgia, the hip hop label here in Atlanta, Georgia, that has got a bunch of faith based artists on it. Or, you know, if you're just listening to Shade 45, it's, it's tough to tell because I feel like the, the artistic nature of the music is very competitive at this point. And at the same time, I think it feels like the music of the church, what you would encounter on a Sunday morning, is really close to what you would be hearing on pop radios. But, and, and a lot of it has come from cross pollinization between black church and white churches there's a, such a great blurring of the line between what what it means to 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 sing together on a sunday morning in terms of gospel or just contemporary 
pop music. And it's been really exciting to watch that happen. Yeah. How would you say your music has grown? Like, how would you describe your sound now from when you started out? Well, it's definitely after having been in Atlanta for uh, a good bit of time, I think it's coming on eight years or so. It definitely has more of an urban foundation in the rhythm section. There's a lot more 808 kick drum than there used to be. Uh, But I still have that uh, Appalachian acoustic instrumentation with banjos and fiddles and that kind of thing. that it, since I've started the solo thing, the songwriting has become a little tighter, uh, I guess a little less meandering. Uh, hopefully, I'm trying to grow in that respect. It's still just uh, urban beats with some banjo on top of it. <laughs> its own genre in itself. I'm not sure what to call it. Yeah, so, <laughs> sweet tea and gasoline is the closest I can call it. <laughs> That's perfect. Even though your music talks about God and spirituality, how can these songs be relatable to those who don't necessarily categorize themselves as a Christian? Well, I love the fact that there's a lot of it that's just in our culture that we've grown up around being Americans. It's like just part of our culture. So I think there's the understanding of the story in a sense of its redemptive aspect that anybody can identify with. Oh goodness, things are not things are not going well. Or I guess in a in a, in a even more personal way, there's the, there's a voice in everybody's head that's like you're not good enough, <laughs> you're less than, you, you know, your mistakes have rendered you beyond redemption. And I think these songs say that's a lie, and and it says that there's grace, that there's forgiveness, and it's ridiculous. I know it's it's like a superfluousness and what what we're proposing grace to be but i think that's what you go to the movies to see as well you know you go you go because you believe that there is redemption and that part of it i think that's why a lot of people in bleaker times turn to church music as you know you were mentioning hymns and there's like a a nostalgic aspect to it as well in the sense of like there's comfort there even if you don't know what you're deriving comfort from Your new album, Milk and Honey, was released in June. Let's talk about the title. Is this taken from the book of Exodus in the Bible? Yes, I think a lot of people that, you know, come from a a background where scripture would be involved, you know, the the whole Old Testament story of the Israelites is pretty, is pretty great. In fact, during the season of quarantine, my wife and I started just reading the Bible together from like the beginning. We had never done that as a, as a couple because she didn't grow up in church. And so a lot of the stuff we were reading, she just hadn't ever encountered it in, in just a reading sense, you know. And so she was asking all these questions. And scriptures is hilarious. We started underlining stuff that's like funny to us in green. And there is a lot of green in the Old Testament. And <laughs> And like the, what? The, what would what would you say? Well, like the like the guy with the with the six fingers and the six toes. That's that's gonna get a green <laughs> underline right there, you know. And there are unicorns in the but if you didn't know about that, there's unicorns in there. Well, but here's the thing. So what I, I love about scripture, and I think that's why, you know, the best selling book of all time is the Bible, is because it's ingenious how the narratives all intersect and are connected. Like the very first story you're encountering is is a story of displacement. It's it's here, here is the created walking in perfect communion with the creator. And and then there is displacement. And the rest of the narrative, the whole meta arc of the all of the books, it, it how do you get back into communion with the one who made you? And the Israelites are a great example of of well, I guess myself <laughs> there, it's like every time they see something absolutely unbelievable miraculous you may say they forget and it's like well where are you now god it's like you just delivered us you know out of out of slavery out of egypt and we're headed to the promised land which is where the milk and honey thing comes in they're headed through the wilderness which i thought was really interesting that we were actually reading you know this section of scripture while we were isolated it felt like desolation being away from one another we're sitting you know at our house by ourselves and 
reading of this uh, wilderness that these folks have to journey through, but they're headed to someplace on the other side of this. And it just turned into this metaphor for me while I was writing music. And I, I, I found myself thinking more about what's what's coming than where we are and what they had a land of promise waiting on the other side of the wilderness, Canaan, which was, uh, you know, as they called it, a land of milk and honey. And I heard, crazy thing is I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson on the Rogan podcast still and he said this and this is after i'd already you know we already had the record done and i hadn't heard this and this blew my mind he said milk and honey are basically the only things that you can that we can eat that don't involve death that all animal and plant products die uh, for us to eat their leaves and flesh but milk and honey nothing does and so that for me is like promise land equals a place flowing with just life and more life and my mind was blown and it was like we would already we'd already finished the record and everything and I was like man what a great metaphor to have just happened onto and and it gave sort of boundaries in a context for what I was writing into in the middle of what felt like a pretty bleak time together collectively I was just ready for the other side of it and knew that there was going to be something to sing about when we got there soon the day is coming when we And another story I happened upon was the gold ring that's on the front cover that says milk and honey. <laughs> Can you talk about that and what inspired that ring? <laughs> Absolutely. So the title of the album was going to be milk and honey. And I'm really visual when I, so I, I need, I need like visuals when I'm writing or when I'm thinking about a, a, a new season of writing. And my, my wife on had found this ring on Etsy and she was like, look at this ring and both she and I eat like five-year-olds so it's like our favorite <laughs> meal is like fish sticks and mac and cheese and it's this gold baller looking ring that says mac and cheese and I'm like that's the cover of the album if that said milk and honey and just on the start that that's that's the album cover right there and so then we were off and running we have a baller ring inspired by mac and cheese my favorite meal <laughs> and 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 uh and yeah that's where the ring came from and i think you can still probably get the mac and cheese ring on etsy if i'm told correctly i haven't tried to get one in a while but <laughs> well i bet the sales of this album will just skyrocket the sales nah, of that ring whoever's, on whoever's etsy. making that deal is like good night some people really got into the mac and cheese lately <laughs> thanks david crowder <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what would you say differs from this album from your past ones i think there's a lot more for the church to sing in a sense of uh, it's very choral. That was partially, I, I think it was because I was just feeling like a lot of us were the distance that we had when we had to be away from one another. Just, we're just not made for that. And, and so every time I would start writing, I would get to a chorus and I'd be like, and then we got to have a choir. <laughs> and I was working with some producers there up in Nashville. And so a lot of this was just done over, you know, the internet sending files back and forth but it got to be pretty redundant as soon as, as we get to the chorus the producer would be like let me guess you want a choir <laughs> yes so we gotta have a choir and due to the nature of where we were uh, a lot of how we recorded multiple voices we weren't able to just get a choir in a room and throw some mics up and and so to me it, it has a even the choral nature of it the choirs sound sort of future I, I called them future space choirs um they, it feels like just due to making them through the wonder of technology and how we were having to connect with each other anyway it turned into a sound that I'm super intrigued by and wonder if we can replicate in the future because I like it so much peace for the soul there's grace for the morning when you feel like letting go
it was all with the mind that one you know on the other side of this we're going to be back in a room together singing songs together and i just think there's something super powerful about about music in a room when we collectively are voicing things it changes us i think or that's i want to believe it does Mm -hmm. do you think you'll be bringing the choir along with you on the tour we're gonna have to i think the band has grown (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna need more buses yeah Uh, yeah for sure we gotta have that to me since most of my lyric is is very intentionally vertical and I'm not singing a lot about as I was mentioning earlier everyday life and like what it means to just be going through your day different things you encounter I would like for us to sing to God now and that's kind of it's a kind of a crazy thought but I believe that that's what we're doing when we gather we're going to now voice adoration and and gratitude and and as I said it forms us it helps us understand each other and understand how we relate to the divine and as well I think it gives us a picture of community because as as we're singing, it's very, uh, I kept saying this too, when I was trying to make argument for needing choral stuff, it's like in the middle of the pandemic, we also had a lot of heightened cultural emotions that that we were trying to work through. And I think a lot of that is due to the distance that we were feeling from one another. And, and it's very difficult to argue when you're trying to harmonize. And I just felt like there were two wonderful words that are musical terms harmony and unity unison to sing together brings you together and harmonizing it's very difficult to argue as well as man what a word to try to carry visually and orally and model we could use a bit more harmony uh, than we're seeing because I think we're much more similar than we are different as far as it means to be alive on this side of the dirt and it's great to be able to model that with uh, music and tonality Well, let's talk about your single, Good God Almighty. This is a very uplifting song about resilience and how we should be dependent upon God in times of difficulty. How do you think this song encapsulates the last year's trials and tribulations? To me, it feels, it's a little defiant. It does, it feels, it sounds and feels very happy, but it's saying some pretty heavy stuff. No matter, you know, to to decide to sing about the goodness of God, no matter what comes, is a very defiant attitude. You know, most of the time, if if things are not going our way, it's more likely that we'll voice our displeasure in our moment. And so to decide to say, no matter what, I believe that you're still God, that you're still in control, that's a difficult thing for us to do a lot of times. And as well, there's one section of the song, it's kind of the the out chorus of the choruses that it it comes from a a song I remember in vacation Bible school as a kid and it to me is the best part when it sounds like we're just going to do it it's like praise him in the morning praise him in the noontime praise him when the sun goes down but it's like it's so praise him when the sun's coming up uh, praise him you know in the middle of the afternoon on a sunny day that kind of but even when it gets dark praise him then too and that's a very difficult thing to do there's a, a real hopefulness in the song but for sure uh, an, an awareness of, of what we're what we've been through and so it feels very defiant to be able to like hey I don't care what came I'm gonna sing and I thought it was kind of funny to play on the phrase good God almighty <laughs> you know because that's sometimes a phrase like when someone's surprised or they're just like oh good God almighty I'm just so upset about something yeah it usually is is a term used when when things are not going well and uh, I, I thought it would be I mean I grew up in East Texas and so you become a appreciative of a good turn of phrase and to reclaim that phrase in a way that's like, actually, this is really a truthful thing to say out loud. You know, God is good God almighty. And that's exactly what he is. And let's say it out loud and, and believe it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So let's go back to your tour. You recently announced a 30-plus date tour nationwide. How does it feel to finally be gearing up to touring again and going back on stage in front of live audiences? It's kind of like I'll believe it when I see it. You know, it's like it's there on the calendar, and that makes me so excited. Please let us get there. I, we're wound up. I mean, we've, we, as soon as the, you know, these new songs were out uh, in the air, we have been rehearsing, and, and uh, there's so much fun to play. And I, they're made for a room full of people to be singing. So I, I can't wait to get there. And, and as I said, looking at the calendar, it looks like a blast. It really does. And I, I hope I didn't ever take this for granted, but I guarantee you, I never suspected that it could all just shut down overnight. So there is a real sense of genuine gratitude and appreciation of getting the opportunity to do this and cannot wait. It's going to be pretty hype. Contemporary Christian artist Crowder speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. His new album is Milk and Honey, and you can learn more about it on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Spivey Hall's Sam Dixon shares some surprising personal news as well as ideas about the future role of the classical music venue. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate, and thanks.